Let's begin Tuesday home time as we always do with Mr. Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when the blocks were blocked. Respectable residents in a huge apartment block in track looked out their windows to see 500 <coughs> oh, sorry, coppers surrounding them. The, the first they knew they were in detention. No, no, don't panic all you track 3CR listeners out there, only joking. No, those social necessities for the common good are for the undeserving non-respectable. The blocks were blocked, public housing, high-rise tenants placed in detention. Thanks to the neoliberal super-efficiency of contracting out government services, which ensured COVID-19 wasn't contained within quarantine hotels. The Hotel Ruby Princess, so to speak, Blocked blocks, a high-rise population, many of whom have fled state oppression, looking out the windows and seeing 500 or so coppers surrounding them, invading the place. What, what better way to give them the news? You're in detention, real sensitivity, enjoying the protection of those coppers moonlighting as screws. Thanks to someone or someone's obviously having a screw loose in deciding it was smart economics to turn private security thugs loose in the quarantine hotels. But the government must be congratulated for handling the logistical nightmare so smoothly, so efficiently that by Thursday as many as eight families were able to have a meal. The residents must have wished the government had contracted out their security to the super-efficient private sector because then they could have come and gone as they wished and, and be propositioned and sexually harassed. Okay, there was a problem that needed addressing, but we would have thought they could have addressed it a bit better. A, a bit of consultation, pre-warning, cultural awareness might not have gone astray. But then within days, we were all locked down. But unlike the public housing tenants, for a couple of days at least, we were allowed to walk out the door with only 8 to 9% chance of being shot on sight, as Melbourne is ringed by not just, like, you know, coppers, but train killers as well, a feeling of real security and the border closure with New South Wales saw our old mate Innes Will Costa workers of the Troubluwazi Industry Profits Group come to our defence with sensible logic. The closure will pull the rug out from under any recovery and is chaos in the making he saged. The border closure puts up a Berlin Wall between our two biggest states which represent more than half the national economy and cuts into our country's major economic artery. It is a sledgehammer. Uh, but in us, it's about the pandemic, the human artery, not, not the economic artery. I'm talking about the pandemic, the economic pandemic. Look, we admitted, and our government's admitted, that when we relaxed the lockdown and distancing and measures that had kept the other less important pandemic under control, flattened the curve, there would be a second wave of deaths and other non-economic consequences, so people can't say they weren't warned. Would you rather die in an economy bashed by a sledgehammer under the Berlin Wall, or would you rather die in a profitable, thriving economy? Well, that's a no-brainer, and speaking of no-brains, Innes was asked by an ABC interviewer, totally unfairly, whether he was putting the economy ahead of public health, as if. It's a matter of balance, he said. We must balance those deaths and illnesses against the damage they cause to the economy. That put the interviewer in his place. 
We all recall how AMP on the customers emerged so triumphantly from the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Finance Sector Royal Commission, praised for such selfless practices as being kind enough, sensitive enough to continue to service and charge the dead, among many examples of impeccable ethics, and thus it's comforting to know it continues its praiseworthy practices, like appointing a bloke called Bo Pahari, B-O-E-P-A-H-A-R-I, real name, because until the past week or so we'd never heard of him, Bo as Supremo of AMP on the customer's capital, ignoring little peccadillos like the company forking out to settle a sexual harassment claim by a woman, quote, subordinate of Bo which some unreasonably complained was more than a little peccadillo and suggested should have disqualified him automatically from getting the top job. As the controversy raged on, the AMP on the customers' capital chair, John Fraser, showed AMP on the customers has retained the very morals that saw it so lauded by the Royal Commission. Bo was promoted, he said, because he made a lot of money for the company. There, case closed. The board was unanimous in appointing him because of his track record. John, a former head of the Federal Treasury, didn't clarify which track record, sexual harassment or making a lot of money for the company, so we'll just have to speculate. But isn't it comforting to know AMP on the customers retains its high moral standards? Speaking of, an ABC announcer promoting what was going to be on his program said, we'll be looking at whether we could have a fairer economy. Sorry I missed the program because now I've got no idea. Could we have a fairer economy? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Could, could we have a fairer economy? How long have we got? We'd need a fair bit of time to think that one through. Interesting to know how John and Bo and the board at AMP on the customers would answer the dilemma. It's the sort of problem we need people like Innes will cost the workers to answer for us because he's an expert on economic stuff. I know this will sound selfish, but how I hope U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo, Donald Trump or the pause, electoral fortunes take a turn for the better because we can't afford to lose this satirist dream. Come on, it's only another four years of iconoclasm, and let's not forget the alternative is the boredom of a Joe Biden by capital. So, apart from the minor danger of World War III, we could watch him do even more damage, and imagine his explanation of why the Constitution must be amended to abolish the pesky two-term limitation. On iconoclasm, this week he denounced those calling for racist monuments, well, so-called racist monuments, to be removed or just removing them anyway. He was defending the U.S. of way of life from the angry mob, he told his screaming acolytes. We are now in the process of defeating the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters. And we'd been fooled into believing the Black Lives Matter movement was about Black Lives Matter not as the President of the United States now exposes as a Marxist, anarchist, agitating bunch of radical left looters. To honour real Americans, responsible anti-Marxist, anti-anarchist, anti-agitating, anti-radical left looting true Americans, he will build a national garden of American heroes, statues of the greatest Americans who have ever lived in a vast outdoor park, greatest ever, ever. Any idea whom he might have in mind as the centerpiece of greatest Americans ever, ever? 
wonder if he, if he would see the Florida Retirement Village Donald supporter yelling white power at Marxist, anarchist, agitator, radical left looter supporters, which he tweeted twice as, a, as an American hero or just a very wise supporter of the greatest American hero ever, ever. No, we can't afford to lose him. That's just one day out of seven. We could fill this segment every week with his latest idiocies. Another bunch we should get rid of are these university researchers who research areas that are none of their business, like their overseas students. The bloody irresponsible Uni of NSW and Uni of Technology surveyed 2,700 students and found, surprise, surprise, three in four being underpaid in their student jobs, one in four earning less than half the minimum wage, and exploitation is likely to worsen during the economic recovery, whenever that will be. Despite the introduction of much higher fines and greater focus from the workplace watchdog, it is still business as usual, they reported. And a new strategy needs to be considered. Well, the first new strategy I'd consider is these researchers' right to interfere in the business of business. Okay, the students might not be well paid, to put it finely, but at least they have a job. Do the well-paid researchers want their students to starve? And this is the government, as the, as the government wants business to fund tertiary research. What a disincentive. About 26% of respondents were paid all of $12 an hour, which one professor described as egregiously underpaid. But what the report fails to point out, I suspect for lefty, lefty commie reasons, is that the 75% exploitation rate is 100% inadvertent. Finally, Back to where we started, what a Machiavellian intervention by the evil unions to provide food, including culturally appropriate food, for the public housing detainees during the detention just to make themselves look good on the specious grounds that the government was stuffing it up. Their evil is bottomless, isn't it? Good afternoon. Another week with Mr Kevin Healy. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Marilyn Miller, soon to be Havini, attended a Christian conference at Monash University in 1967. And it was there she met her future husband, Moses Havini, a chief from Australian Administrative Booker Island, the second largest island of Bougainville. And he was one of Bougainville's leading campaigners for independence. And the rest, as they say, is history. But it has been a turbulent history, with the devastating nine-year war, which claimed 20,000 lives, followed by a 20-year peace process leading to parliamentary and presidential elections, which commence mid-August. Sadly, Moses died in 2015. But Marilyn is still working tirelessly with the people of Bougainville, particularly the women. And in the recent Queen's Birthday Honours List, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for her significant service to the international communities of PNG and Bougainville. On Saturday morning, I rang Marilyn, who is now living and working in the north of Booker Island, to talk about the situation 
in Bogleville as people prepare for the elections and began by congratulating her on her much-deserved award. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it was a very big surprise to me, but for the, for the people of Bougainville, I'm very happy. <laughs> Who nominated you, do you know? No, I have found out since three different groups have come forward, Bougainville Women Group have come forward to let me know that they were contacted and asked to write references and to say all the things I've done with them. Uh, one group in uh, all the Bougainville Women, uh, women and um, group in Brisbane, and the Women's Federation here in Bougainville, and the group that I still continue to work with, the Women's Collective. They all secretly got letters at some stage last year and have replied, but whoever put it up, we still have no idea. (laughs) Can you talk about the women of of Booker and Bougainville that you work with, those organisations you work with? I, I did do a stint after coming back from the the exile that my husband, late Moses Havini, it was our wedding anniversary yesterday, mind you, Aww. 49 years married, but, but but we returned, yeah, we returned uh, permanently in 2005 and built a home in the village and the women in the north of Booker, the, where my husband comes from, they were distressed that I wasn't working with them, but I was working with all the women behind the blockade on mainland Bougainville and they ordered me to uh, help them the same way. And I said, but you've had services under the Papua New Guinea government. And they said, no, not up here in the north end of Booker. And living here, I realised that they're really just very isolated and cut off totally from anything. So, yes, the women from behind the blockade came up. We held a big forum. 651 women turned up. and 117 of those were young women from Hapu. But a whole delegation, about 14 or 15 women came from uh, down in central Bougainville and brought a big work sack full of vegetables and things, you know, the traditional way of handing across a burden or, or a gift from women to pass on the work. And so we were directly linked then with all the women that I had worked with through the negotiations and through the peace building process. And we formed the Bones of Women for Peace and Freedom. And then that uh, became a light towards the umbrella group of all the women's organisations that had developed through the war, through all those years of war. And they needed to form some kind of overall women's group. And that became known as the Federation. I became an Australian volunteer for a couple of years and worked with the Women's Federation in setting that up. And then I moved back and became uh, retained as a volunteer back with the collective, the initial group that we'd established. But stop that. I retired from that 18 months ago. And I did make it possible with the first funding for us to build a resource centre here in, in, in Haku. But now we've gone on and found more funding and we've, we've built a big training hall right next door to my husband's grave. Mm. Um, on the other side of my, my home, we've, we've got a training hall, we've got a library, community library, we have a, a safe house, a women's safe house, and we have an agriculture hub. So we're looking at social security and disability. Uh, we've pioneered and helped uh, the Bougainville government to focus on disability and set up a BDPO for the whole of Bougainville. We've partnered, we found funding from government sources to partner and bring in from the Sydney University School of Medicine, the Centre for Disability Studies. So yes, we're, we're working on all these levels of rescue. Our Safe House Digital Foundation is 
funded us this year to build a standalone safe house. We're halfway through completing. We're doing quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> the, the women are amazing. They're a wonderful team of women. I love working with them. <laughs> and the men. We, we, we totally include men and um, and especially people with disability and vulnerable women, widows, abandoned mothers. They're a great team. So I guess what you've just said there, they're the main issues for women on Bougainville and particularly on Booker. And they haven't been getting those, mm. and they haven't been getting services like that before. No, you see, there's no funding. The, the government is really cash-strapped. You always see in the in the news about the millions that they're supposed to get and never get. So at the village end of the line, there's just nothing there for people. So we have to do it with our own initiatives. I'm exhausted. I, you know, I'm a retired art teacher. I thought I was coming home to paint permanently and be an artist, but. All my creative energies have gone into proposal writing and, and securing, trying to get uh, partnership funding from non-government sources and partnerships with uh, with UN organisations. So we do a whole lot of positive parenting. We've designed our own Bougainville-based positive parenting training uh, with UNICEF support and and UN Women are helping us with uh, women, peace and security uh, and all the work with building a safe. Bougainville after a war, you know, a decade of war. Are you mainly focused on Booker or do you travel to the main island as well? I'm based in Haku, which is the very northern tip of Booker, and our organisation would probably be like a, a trial. What Everything we're doing, we're inventing. And as we invent it and workshop it and make it work, we share it out beyond Haku. And, yes, so... Our positive parenting, we did training of trainers to 20 women for the central region of Bougainville and 20 women who we went down to the south to Bowen and did a training for 20 women trainers in south Bougainville last year and 20 for north Bougainville. So we're exporting what we are trialling and proving that works with us here. We are sharing through Bougainville, yes. Are you still seeing traumas from the, the war years? Oh, yes. There are so many people that have need, uh, emotional needs, and a lot of the family and sexual violence is self-confessed. The men are saying we need help. And, and the men were, once they let go, once the peace process started and men put down their weapons, they were lost. They only knew the power of the gun, a whole generation. And it was the women that were doing a lot of the initiatives while they were busy fighting on the front lines. The women couldn't live on the run anymore. You know, we've written a book about this as Mothers of the Land. With, I wrote it with Josie Kona, Surabhi. And we we realised that the women had to go on with living and pick up the pieces and, and develop family life. So when the men came back to their families, they were exhausted and traumatised from war. And a lot of them, when the going got tough, they would go off and have a romance and get what would be a second wife. You know, they started moving from one woman to another and they started calling them like their guns, 01, 02, 03, 04. So we have got some fathers who have parented up to 50 kids from different women. All It's not like they're monogam, like they're polygamous. It's like a serial monogamy that has happened and this needs time to heal. You know, we've, we're addressing all these vulnerable women that are raising all these children no child is an orphan. Because of our matrilineal society, every child 
has a home in their clan, in their in the mother's clan. So it's easier in a way for men to just hop, skip and jump when the, when the going gets tough. And so a lot of the we're developing besides the safe houses and rescue for women, we're developing men's hubs and helping men to to cope with their trauma and with with responsibility, with picking up social responsibility again and wanting to be a father and hang in there with the families. And are there also young adults now who were children during the war who missed out on education? Yes, yes, there's a big <clears throat> there's a big gap in education for sure. They called it the lost generation. First of all, they, they they called it the blood generation, and then they moved. They didn't like that. We, we've walked, our reconciliations have moved beyond the the blood tag and, and the sense of bloodshed. We wanted, so they called them the lost generation. But now we don't refer to them like that, and they've extended policies on youth goes up to the age of 35. So the official policy for youth goes from 15 years of age to 35 years of age to bridge, to try and bridge and and, and allow that generation of, of young fighters to still access all the youth developments and and education gap filling that, that they need. And what are they being trained for? What work is there for them? There's very little... We need economic development and we need we need income earning. We need to build our our means for employment, but people need skills and education. So that's why our training centre, that's why we built the training centre and we run many, many skills workshops. So for instance last year we received funding through a wonderful group called PICA, who are just a, a giving circle in Brisbane, retired people with, with uh income that they dedicate to and they partnered with DFAT and we got 35,000 Australian dollars and we built an agriculture hub. We partnered, our women, Huckleman's Collective partnered with DPI here, Department of Primary Industry, and we brought in 90 youth, 90 women, people with disability and youth and some of them were older family people. We, we, we were taught rice farming, upland dry rice farming and backyard vegetable farming. So took three months of training them and they all grew their own gardens and DPI have come back and come through and seen that they're now getting market income, they're feeding their families better. We've got a rice mill at the collective and so we'll, they've got a place to come to mill their rice. So that's informal education. That's just one example of what we're doing right through Bougainville, trying to, to overcome the, the stress on the education system. The education system is working, it's developing all the time. There's elementary, then primary, and then lower lower secondary. But each time they get to that level, at the end of the, each of those grades, you get the children select, selected to go on and many that are left behind. So they have to be picked up in communities to run all sorts of skills-based education opportunities to build a future for them. If children want to go into higher education, how does that happen? They have to get through all of those screenings and into year 11 and 12. And uh, the ones that don't get selected for 11 and 12 do have an option to go to FODE, which is like a, a com, um, correspondence, but it's very slow and takes years to, to keep up with the year 12 
entry. And then, of course, there's the PNG uh, tertiary institutions that they have to compete with the rest of Papua New Guinea to get into. And whereas, where Bougainville before the war was one of the top performing educational centres of the whole of Papua New Guinea, we're the bottom. So very few get into tertiary education. It's the biggest area to face for them. Does that mean that the actual infrastructure of education was destroyed during the war? I'm thinking of buildings, materials. Yes. They all gone. Yes, yes. They all had to be rebuilt from scratch. Yep. Very few. Oh, one or two. Hujena survived, struggled through. I once taught used to teach at Hujena in the 70s, but no, all the other high schools and every all the schools were just just totally wasted, and a lot of the schools were turned into the concentration camps or care centres surrounded by the army. So some of those, like at Eltapan, just down the road from us, the people levelled. They, they, they couldn't, there was too much bloodshed, and there's no way they could put a school back there, so they moved the school totally up the road to rebuild education up the road. What about the health centres, which were so important during that war? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're still struggling. We've very often got no medicine. My car, I'm like, I'm like a standby ambulance all the time. And, you know, every time I rush somebody up to the local health centre, which is 67 kilometres away from the hospital, I'm expecting that there's going to be no nurse on duty, there's going to be very little medicine, or they're going to just turn us away. My first aid kit does more than, than what we can get for help at some times. I mean, the nurses are working very hard. There's not enough of them. We have got a nursing school just started in Hapu here, but they're starting with nothing, absolutely nothing, bare boards, to learn, just to learn. And the hospital that the Australian government helped to build during the war reconstruction at Buka, that's the main centre. There is another hospital just been opened in Arawa where, in, where the main the hospital was totally destroyed during the war and they've built a new little hospital there. It's starting to get better supplies. But, you know, people are living in rural, remote places, and and you've got to rush them great distances through flooded rivers, all sorts of things, just to get to help. With COVID-19 and all the laws under the state of emergency we have, our Women, Peace and Security team were, were reconvened, brought back together to advise the controller, the police commander who's in charge of the state of emergency, the police reported to us that they were concerned with the SOE controlling the passage that women in labour were redirected to only go to one boat stop which is at a good distance from the hospital and they asked our women's team to bring to the controller the urgent need for them to reopen the uh, more direct route for the women in labour to access the hospital you know, when they've got complications and things like that, they, and it's quite a walk. But if they could get across the passage at a, at a shorter route, well, then it would make things a lot easier. So there, there are many aspects that the SOE, in its good-hearted attempt to protect Bougainville, and we haven't any COVID cases at all have come into Bougainville, not one, uh, but they, they impact women and families in ways that the men who are running the, the, the state of emergency don't pick up straight away. The inclusion of women and disability input is very important. 
just explain a little bit more what those restrictions are and um, explain more about how it impacts on women? They have totally, and also for the elections, because we've got a double barrel thing happening. And as just as last year during the referendum, um, they put a total alcohol ban on Bougainville for the three months during the referendum. They've done the same thing with the state of emergency. So there's no alcohol and there's supposedly no buai or betel nut because betel nut chewing involves spitting. And they're very concerned if the virus came and people were spitting buai, that it would be a deadly way of spreading the virus. So those are the two big social restrictions on lifestyle. Apart from that, they've sealed all our borders. So there's no one allowed in through the designated ports. And that means no shipping. The shipping can come locally, but there's no passengers. The airline was shut down totally. We had no planes for three months, but or two months, I think. But now they're allowing occasional flights from Moresby. So they, they did initially open with one flight a fortnight on a Friday, but now they're gradually opening up to allowing occasional flights in on a Wednesday or a Friday. And those people are totally screened. And when they get off the plane, they have to go into 14 days quarantine. And there was money that was allocated to before they allowed the flights to restart back into Bougainville to upgrade facilities to receive those people under quarantine. And if they show any symptoms, there's a further facility. One of the sub-health centres has been totally remodelled to be able to take on any nursing of cases, but so far it remains empty. But things like the markets were all shut down, and so that impacted everybody being able, especially the town people, being able to access fresh food. And there was a, a hue and cry about that. They just they put a big, um, lot of work in, into contracting the women. Our peace and security really leaned on them to get the markets open in towns and and just semi-rural areas. And some of the women have been through some wrong treatment where they were desperate for cash funds and were selling market things and the police came along and and we heard that some of them were, you know, put through some paces and made to do push-ups to teach them a lesson in the hot sun and things like that that weren't very good. But whereas the men are secretly still selling cartons and cartons of beer behind the back doors, you know, there's, there's an inequity there where where men will still try and push the boundaries on the big scale, whereas women get caught doing it on the small scale. What's the mood, or how would you gauge the mood moving forward to the um, the election in a couple of weeks? It's very upbeat. I think this is a positive side. Having been through such a wonderful experience, the referendum months were just glorious, and it was everything... I dreamed of during the negotiation period that people would have a vision and work towards a vision. And that has totally reset their minds in terms of what elections are about. So there, but there is an enormous field of candidates in every seat, more people running than you've ever seen. I think there's 24 candidates for just for the president. Our Haku open seat has got 22, only one woman. Now, that this is the thing, that there are more women standing. There's even two women standing in the presidential race, and there are more women that are running through Bougainville than in any period of history before. 
and more and in most seats even one more than one two women per seat so everybody's very open to listen to everybody there's uh, now there's more social media and people can get uh, whatsapp and messenger facebook uh, they're using those for their campaigns people are actually doing posters with platforms and we're all welcoming everybody to come and speak to us and our platforms collective we have a most checklist uh, we've got 12 categories where we we're assessing each candidate that comes about you know um, their character their experience their their qualifications their um, uh, platforms are all all the different key areas that we think we need to be able to use to measure one against another. Lots of choice. We're spoiled for choice. The actual elections themselves. Yeah, yesterday I just want to say that I went. I was a formal guest at a launching of a um, gender equity and social inclusion policy by OBEC, the Bougainville uh, Office for the Electoral Commission. This is very exciting. This is a dream come true. And next week we're sending down six youth from Haku as part of a training exercise of people with disability to be included in the whole, in different parts of the election process. But the um, commissioner, the electoral commissioner, came directly to me yesterday and said to me, Marilyn, we've got an issue. Because of COVID-19, no, we cannot get any international observers. Now, last year, the international observers that came in from nations around the world were critical in proving the genuineness of the, of the uh, referendum. And they were really hoping to get this back again. And so last year, we, we put our hands up and so did the Federation to be domestic observers. So he begged, he begged me, he said, next week they'll be advertising for observer groups to come forward. And he begged me, please, will the Huckleman Collective come back? And I said, yes, they'll be ready. They'll come. And so uh, then I turned around. He said, who else can we go to? So I looked. I said, well, there's the, the disability organizations in each region, and there's the Red Cross, besides the Federation and our organization. And then he said, in his address to us all, he said that they hadn't been able to get the international uh, security personnel. And... Nor, nor the ADF either, Australian Defence Force. So they don't want the PNGDF. So they've settled on a commercial arrangement of security over the, the ballot boxes travelling and to make sure that there's no interference with any of the voting process. The people you speak to, Marilyn, particularly the women, what do they want from this election? They want leaders who will lead them into independence. That's their first. They, there are there are very good people standing, but you know, wanting to to look after PNG as well and as as Bougainville, etc. Uh, there is so much choice because there's there's the candidates who are saying let's take our independence immediately by force. There's more moderates who are saying let's work out a three to five year arrangement, and then there's those who are saying well let's let's um very very few that are saying well well, we can't be sure how long it's going to take. Let's just sort of start walking the talk and, and make it happen slowly. So, but from what I can see, everyone's saying, if they're not, if they're not up there for independence as, the first, as their first platform, well, then they're not getting one, two, or three in this preferential vote system where you can only vote for one, two, or three options. Uh, the, the other things they're looking for are good governance. 
we've got to struggle on because in the past we've seen the election as being like Father Christmas. This is the time of, of vote buying. I'll get a water tank. I'll get presents. We'll, we'll get we'll get developed because they're so desperate for basics of everyday life. You know, roads, transport, access to to places. So a lot of people will still be looking at the present givers, but there is a big swing, happily a big swing, that they're now really looking at much more important things and not just promises of what will you give us, but what are you building? What are you, what what, what are you doing about making a Bougainville education system, health system, development system that will serve the people under that independent banner? Where does the talk of mining come into all of this? Oh, you've even got choice on that one. There are some people, even good people, even guys that were with us through the whole struggle, like Mark Miriori, who, was, who, who, who comes from the mine area, who says, you know, I, I can help us to get mining happening responsibly, that will belong to the people that can fund our independence. But then you've got a, a large number of people who are saying, forget mining, let's do it with agriculture, with our own resources. We, we, we have to get our independence, then we'll worry about mining. So I think Bougainville's pretty well split on, still on mining. They're still split. What about the relationship with PNG? That's good. I think everybody feels that we've got a, a good open dialogue with Papua New Guinea. They're not seen as the big baddies anymore. They're seen as partners that we need to work it out with. But we do know that Papua New Guinea doesn't really want to let us go. So they do know that we've got an ideological difference of opinion there. But they do want to do it peacefully. And I think Papua New Guinea is so far indicating that they want to also be responsible and do it peacefully. And of course we can't discard the relationship with Australia, especially the the interference or more than interference of the Australian government in the war? It's not just Australia, yeah. Australia definitely and, and but there are there's China. You see China's leaning very heavily on um, Bougainville and promising some of our candidates to come in and fund independence and so the region, the whole region is watching this very, very carefully. But you're upbeat, aren't you? Well, we have to. We have to believe um, and work for a future. Yes, yes, I am. I am hopeful. I am optimistic. I, I was thinking the other night, I could put all the guys that are, and women that are standing into three categories. One are the, the ones that really have a vision and really want to... They all say they do, but some of them are really have got status and personal motives, personal interest reasons of wanting to be the person to do it rather than thinking with a, and, and knowing what they have already contributed. There's a lot of want-to-be's. There's a lot of people standing that want to be the person to do it. But there are, there, when you really look at the ones that have really got scores on the board, runs on the board, have proven that they can lead, that they have led, that they've already sacrificed and served the people at personal cost, they're the ones I'm looking at. And then there's a third category that I'm worried about, people that are manipulators, that, that are wanting power. And I guess every society has a few of those. And, and some of those people have money and they've, they've learned how to gain power. So there, to me, there's a couple of threats you've got to watch. I've been speaking with Marilyn Havini, Australian social and human rights activist,
whose home for many years has been Bougainville, particularly the island of Booker. Working with the people to overcome the trauma and dislocation of the war in the late 20th century and move towards independence. Staying in the area, last week I spoke with Catherine Coomins from Mining Watch Canada about the closure of the Barrett Gold Pogram mine. As expected, Barrett Gold has served a dispute notice to the PNG government over the country's refusal to renew a licence for the Pogram mine. The world's second largest gold producer argues that PNG's decision to reject the application for the lease extension violated the bilateral investment treaty between the country and Australia, as well as international laws governing foreign investment. If the parties can't settle the dispute through negotiations, Barrick plans to take PNG to international arbitration. So it goes on. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. On the 25th of June, wreaths were laid at the Korean War Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., and South Korean War veterans and authorities gathered to commemorate the beginning of the Korean War in 1950. Officially, the Korean War has never technically ended, although the armistice agreement brought an end to the hostilities on the 23rd of July, 1953, that ceasefire never gave way to a peace treaty. Today I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson, who has visited North Korea on two occasions in recent years, and the aim is to set the record straight on the Korean War. Tim, if I put to you the date of the beginning of the Korean War was not 1950, but was 1945, with the ending of World War II, would you agree with that? So let's go back a little bit more, just to put it in context, that Korea had been annexed by Japan. It had been dominated by Japan for a long time, but it was annexed by the Japanese Empire in 1910, and there'd been a long resistance movement against it, up to and including during the Second World War period. In 1945, when at the end of the Second World War, when Japan was being defeated by the US from the east, and the Soviet Union entered the war against Japan very late in the day, very, very late in the day after Nazi Germany had been defeated. And we know that the Soviet Union, of course, did most of the heavy lifting work, came to defeating the Nazis and bore most of the casualties. So the Soviet Union under Joe Stalin entered the war against Japan very late in August 1945. I mean, the U.S. is regarded as having dropped those nuclear weapons on the two cities in Japan, largely as a warning to the Soviet Union uh, it, it did mark the end of the war against Japan, but it wasn't really necessary for the end of the war. But it was a, the opening shots, really, in the Cold War. So the U.S. wanted to occupy that part of Asia, part of Northeast Asia, uh, as a hedge against the Soviet Union, and then later on against uh, the People's Republic of China, which they didn't recognize, of course, for a very long time. So one of the important things to come out of this, really, is that the idea of a divided Korea a North and a South Korea, it had never existed before, and it was created by US, the US military, two US colonels apparently, in that period in August 1945, where they arbitrarily decided to make a line across the, 30, the 38th parallel in Korea, dividing the country strategically. It was part of an agreement that they reached, a, a, a temporary agreement they'd reached with the Soviet Union, which they called a trusteeship. And in the trusteeship then, 
the U.S. would uh, administer the southern part of the Korean Peninsula and the Soviet Union, the northern part of the peninsula, with the idea that they would be a trustee until an independent Korean state was set up. Well, of course, that never happened, and, and there's, the, there's the dilemma, and that's why you're right to say that to, we need to look very closely at 1945 to understand what since then has been called North and South Korea. But were there attempts to unite those two areas of Korea into one in that period? Yes. I mean, of course, that was the aim of the Korean resistance since the early part of the, 19th, uh, the 20th century, effectively. On all sides, there was no sense of even speaking about a divided Korea. Uh, it was purely and simply a, a military decision taken by the occupying powers, um, made by the US and agreed to in a temporary form by the Soviet Union. And indeed, after that, of course, the US installed a puppet called Syngman Rhee, their own military dictator who'd lived a lot of his time in, in the US and was a loyal collaborator with the US at that time, whereas Kim Il-sung was the acknowledged leader of the independence movement in the northern part at that time. So both Kim Il-sung and Syngman Rhee still regarded, and nothing had really contradicted this, that a Korea should be unified, there should be a unified independent Korea state. So did the US actually leave South Korea, or did certain people stay there? Never. never. The US never left. There was a, like a provisional agreement that both the Soviet and the US troops should leave, and indeed Kim Il-sung asked the Soviet troops to leave in late 1948, and they did. And at about this time, the U.S. was getting the establishment of a South Korean state. The South Korean state, which had never existed before, was created by the U.S. effectively, making use of its influence in the U.N. at that time, which we should turn to in a moment, creating this artificial South Korean state in late 1948. Now, at that time, Kim Il-sung, the leader of the independence forces, asked the Soviets, uh, asked Joe Stalin to remove its troops from North Korea, and they did. Of course, there was still a relationship of helping them with arms and so on, but effectively the independent forces in the North knew that they had to, by their own efforts, and this became part of their central ideology, or Juche, that they had to achieve independence by their own efforts and not by an occupying power. Whereas in South Korea to this day, uh, the US troops never left effectively since 1945 to today they have maintained an ongoing occupation of the southern part of the Korean Peninsula. You mentioned the influence of the UN. What happened there? What was, you know, a, a type of historical accident, really, which the US used to its advantage, was that, you know, the Security Council was set up in 1945 when the UN was created, and it had five permanent members who have a veto, and that's still the system we've got today, basically. They were at the US, France, Britain, and in Cold War terms, on the other side, the Soviet Union and China. Now, because the People's Republic of China was established in 1948, the US refused to recognise it and refused to recognise it for the next, what was it, 13 years until Richard Nixon recognised the People's Republic of China in 1971. They pretended for a very long time that the, the nationalist rump which had fled to the island of Taiwan was China. And so... Those of us with long enough memories or who've read, read history will know that there was this fiction where Taiwan was regarded as China until the early 70s. And so 
as it happened in 1948, the Soviet Union, the ambassador of the Soviet Union to the UN, walked out of the Security Council in protest at the UN Security Council, not which means Britain, France, and the US, not recognising the People's Republic of China. In that interim period, when there was no Soviet Union and no uh, People's Republic of China there, they decided to authorise the process of creating the South Korean state, and then later on the the military force which would prosecute the Korean War effectively on behalf of the US. Are you saying that the people in the South had no say in this? The South was a military dictatorship. They had some elections, but they were in the nature of elections under a military dictatorship. Both sides of Korea were effectively military dictatorships at that time, but the Western even the Western histories, which are very biased, and it's very hard to... I was looking through them this morning. It's very hard to find decent, independent histories of Korea because all of the the functions like Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, Wikipedia and so on are incredibly biased just in terms of basic history there. But effectively, they do, even even those histories do recognise that for a very long time after 1948, South Korea was a military dictatorship. There was massive repression because there were communist sympathisers and there were people who didn't want to be under a puppet government. Effectively, to this day, even, even though the form since about the late 80s, the form of government became a more civilian government in South Korea. You know, to this day, there's still, I think, about 24,000 US troops there with nuclear weapons. And that's the way in which South Korea has remained to this day, effectively colonised. Was there any time in those early days before the so-called beginning of the war in 1950 that the US tried to or did invade the North? No, because they they established that 38 parallel, and even though their puppet, Syngman Rhee, his ambition was to control the entire peninsula, the events were that effectively the North took the initiative to try and reunify the peninsula. Once the, once the after the Soviet trips had gone, it was uh, the, the nationalists in the North assumed that this was a signal that the US troops should get out, and that the Koreans Koreans amongst themselves should resolve the matter amongst themselves and create a unified Korea. And both sides wanted that. I mean, one of the reasons why Syngman Rhee didn't sign the armistice in 1953 at Panmunjom across the border in North Korea, the armistice but not a peace agreement which ended that war without any of the US objectives achieved. The US didn't want to help unify under Syngman Rhee, but it was the it was Kim Il-sung's forces that took the initiative in. Uh, of course... If you look in more detail at history, there was provocations and so on across the board because both sides had the same objective to unify, reunify the peninsula against this division that had been temporary division put in place in 1945. Well, what was the build-up to the 25th of June 1950? There were, you know, incursions and there were, you know, there's still a dispute about the actual detail of, you know, who did what provocation first and so on. All of the Western histories will say that Kim Il-sung's forces invaded the South and, and to, indeed took over Seoul, which is very close to the, the demilitarised sort of border zone there. But there is a dispute in terms of, you know, which provocation came first because what's not in dispute is that both sides had the very clear ambition to unify the country. That war still is not resolved. There were crimes against humanity during those three years of... 1950 to 1953, I'd imagine, on both sides? 
It was a terrible war. It was like the war in Vietnam, also prosecuted by the, the Americans, you know, some years later on. The war museum in Pyongyang is, is a sobering place. Uh, it shocked me, you know, because all this happened a long time ago, before I was born. And the history we got from it is very distorted, but there was a terrible assault on the on the north Pyongyang, for example, which had a population of about 400,000 people at the time, had more than 400,000 bombs dropped on it. They used chemical weapons, biological weapons, everything short of nuclear weapons at that time. And there was a stated aim at the time to literally bomb it back to the point where they could not reconstruct that big city, which is now the capital of North Korea, for 100 years. In fact, they did. The North Koreans take pride in the fact that, you know, they did reconstruct, but it was a terrible war and the, there were no, you know, there were very few scruples. The US certainly discussed the use of nuclear weapons, but they didn't do it. But of course, it became a huge war because the US carrying the banner of the UN and Britain, you know, like they did with the invasion of Iraq, effectively, it was a very similar sort of a coalition pretending some causa spella, you know, some beautiful cause. Of course, from the Korean point of view, they were the invaders. They'd been there a very short time, and the Koreans were fighting to expel the U.S. just as they'd expelled the um, the Japanese. What happened was that the the Chinese, a volunteer Chinese force from the People's Republic of China, joined in to prevent the U.S. and its forces annihilating the North, basically, and that's what um, created the um, the impasse, effectively, and forced the U.S. to send their general to the demilitarized area and sign that agreement with the North Korean, a North Korean general, a representative of, of Kim Il-sung. And that, that armistice, by the way, we should remember, because this is part of the history that's also distorted, was between a U.S. general and a Korean general. And there was a Chinese volunteer army representative there too. There was no UN representative there, except that the US was claiming to represent the UN. There was no South Korean representative there because effectively the US was representing South Korea. And Syngman Rhee in particular didn't want to sign an armistice because he wanted to continue the process of trying to take over the entire peninsula. And, and at the place where they signed the treaty and the table still there and the photographs full of people who were there and the photographs of the document, you know, the US side had noted that this was the first time, it was a humiliation, it was the first time they'd signed a peace, uh, sorry, an armistice, not a peace agreement, without achieving any of their military objectives. It was effectively the status quo of that line on the map drawn by two US colonels in August 1945 was what they returned to it in uh, was it 1953. Talk about the efforts of Wilfred Burchett. Where was he during that time? So Wilfred Burchett was a famous left-wing Australian journalist who, I believe, came first to prominence by getting in early to Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the, um, if I'm not mistaken, after the uh, Nagasaki as well as Hiroshima, and documenting the, you know, the atrocities that have been carried out against the Japanese people there. Because, you know, let's recap a little bit of history here. Hiroshima was entirely a civilian city. There was no military objective in experimenting with a nuclear weapon against civilian human beings there. There was no military force to be negated there. There was no real military objective there. It was a pure act of terrorism, the first use of nuclear weapons, and it was against civilian people. 
and it wasn't necessary to end the war. The war was, was already ending at that time. As I said, it was a demonstration shot to the Soviet Union in terms of staking out territory in that part of Northeast Asia. So Wilfred Burchett covered the human side of that, the human dimension to that, and then also the the victory of the uh, of the People's Republic of China that led by Mao Zedong at that time. Similarly with the, the Korean experience and later on with the Vietnamese experience. So effectively he was a very important, genuinely independent um, Australian journalist who covered the socialist side and the resistance side of the struggles in, in East Asia in from the 40s through to the 60s. And his payback for that? Well, they, of course, you know, they found him a traitor and excluded him. And I, I believe his son has written a fair bit about the, the personal experience there. I can't, don't recall the details, but certainly they ostracised him. And, you know, far from the alleged principles of freedom of press and so on, they, they hated someone like that who was going to show the other side of the story. Well, let's look at the impacts on first the people of South Korea and then the peoples yeah. of North Korea. What does it mean for them? Yeah. Well, one thing, if you visit Korea, you will have to be struck by the fact that it's a very distinct and ancient culture. It has its own culture, its own history, its own language, its own music, and it's very different to China. It's very different to Russia. It's very different to Japan, despite the colonial history with Japan. I mean, if you go to Japan also, you'll notice that the old dynasties had been invading Korea since at least the 16th or 17th century. So the formal annexation of Korea into the Japanese Empire in the early 20th century was a continuum of that. But nevertheless, um, even into prehistoric times, you know, with ancient ceramics and so on, Korea has its own culture and its own identity. And the division of the country for the last, you know, 70-odd years hasn't changed that. So... For example, when there was, you know, there's very strong desire for reunification, um, but that hasn't gone away. Uh, I think the, the Western press plays it down. I remember seeing a report a couple of years ago, two years ago exactly, when the new talks were initiated between the leaders of the of the two parts of the country in, in early 2018. You might remember some of the Western media was playing down the support for reunification because the U.S. wants to keep its foothold there in, in Northeast Asia. They were saying that through the opinion polls that young people in South Korea were less interested in reunification. So I looked up, I looked up the opinion polls. It's true that they were. It was something like 78% of young people wanted reunification compared to the average of about 82 or 83%. So this is in the South. The North has been has been committed to reunification and um, you know. The, Probably it's 99%, you know, depending on how you regard their opinion polls, basically. So, is to say, across the North and the South, despite the great differences in the systems that have grown up, there is this very strong sense of identity and history and culture which makes them enthusiastic for reunification. And the problem is, of course, that those who stand to gain from the division and from the occupation of the U.S. and from the maintenance of a U.S very strong military presence in the South there, are the ones that are always going to sabotage that. You're listening to an interview with Dr Tim Anderson and the focus is why a peace treaty was never signed between North and South Korea in the 1950s. I mean, I, I remember, I think it was in the middle of 2018, when the genuine process was opened up between the North and the South 
and the, the, the president then, who was the, who's still the current president of, of the South, seemed genuinely to to want to advance the initiative. There's always been a, a strong current in, in in South Korean politics along these lines, but didn't have the will to push it through. That is to say, if the U.S. wanted to stop it, wanted to sabotage it, they would do it. And one of the first things they did to sabotage it was to prevent the rail links between Seoul and Pyongyang. The cities are not that far apart. I don't know the exact distance, but it may only be 50 or 60 kilometres, something like that. And it wouldn't have been very difficult for them to put through the rail link there. They had some sporting exchanges and so on. But it was a US general just two years ago who blocked in the name of international sanctions and one thing and another and, you know, invoking the name of the UN and so on, that the South, as well as the North, could not go ahead and with these processes. You know, it was a, a humiliating rebuff to some genuine initiatives that, that had been there. And they'd been there, they'd been tried before too, under the current North Korean uh, leader's father, Kim Jong-il. There was a similar sort of, you know, Korean Spring Initiative back about a decade or so ago, they'd identified a whole range of joint projects, joint industrial projects, rail links, joint tourism projects, and so on, or a whole range of things that they could do together if this impediment of the artificial barrier placed by foreign powers between the two parts of Korea were removed. So I think the key problem really is that, uh, and the question of the two different systems, how they would evolve, that's entirely something that would be worked out independently by Koreans. It wouldn't necessarily be the same as with the reunification of Germany, for example. You know, but once you, since you have an occupying army there with an interest in maintaining its presence there for big power purposes, for the hedge against the Russia, hedge against China, and so on, then that's what sabotages it. And you, in the South, you don't have a government, even if it wants reunification, with sufficient will to to break through that barrier, there's the recalcitrant problem. You've been to the north of Korea twice. What strikes you when you yeah. first arrived there? One, it's a very lush and, and green country. You know, we we hear these stories of starvation and so on. And uh, I think they link back to the period in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and the, there was a real serious economic depression in, in the north like there was in Cuba after the, the trade links with the old Soviet Union collapsed, basically. But it is a, a lush country, um, and even though the grain belts, you know, the agriculture of the south is stronger and the metallurgy and industry of the north is stronger, there was this complementarity of the two parts. But you know, I think the one thing that struck me is what I mentioned before, that Korea is Korea. It has a long history and it's very distinct. You know, I, I was struck, for example, by the fact that Korean music, they love opera, you know, and their love of opera is more linked to Russian and European music than Chinese music, for example. They're very distinct people culturally, and, and they, have, they have tremendous capacity. And, um, you know, what they could do were the, the two parts joined again, even if they were joined with two different systems, uh, is, uh, you know, bears some... Thinking about, you know, they, for example, um, ceramics, some of the older ceramics, I got some examples of it and brought it home with me, you know, that some of the, that early ceramics is some of the, the oldest ceramics in history. There's a tremendous history of Korea and this whole idea of the country divided in half is something that 
the Western powers, the US in particular, have contributed to that and want to maintain. And it's a terrible tragedy, really. What influence do you believe China has on North Korea to this day? The Chinese influence is very important because they have the biggest border with North Korea. I mean, uh, Russia has a border, but it's not nearly as big and the the direct links are not as strong. Uh, I think the Koreans have always seen themselves as and ideologically committed themselves to being independent of either Soviet or Chinese influence and control because they're the two big permanent big neighbours there, basically, which, which helps isolate them in a way, but also conditions they're thinking about about independence. But China, of course, since it became far more, let's say, pragmatic and commercial, um, has lost a lot of its ideological commitment to North Korea, but it certainly doesn't want the US footprint to expand in that part of the world and be used against them. We see now that it's huge new Cold War being prosecuted by Washington against China. But uh, one thing I noticed, because I visited in 2017 and 2018, and 2017 was when Trump was talking up nuclear war and so on, and the, the North Koreans in their fashion were coming back just as just as hard against Trump, you know, and pointing to their own nuclear weapons, which they developed as a deterrent, of course. You know, they, of course, they're not in any position to attack the U.S., but uh, they have a deterrent, which forced... Trump to the, to the negotiating table, not that anything came of that, basically. But I think that, you know, the, the sense of independence, even from China, is very palpable in, in North Korea. But having said that, the following year, in 2018, I noticed a difference in that in 2018, we've moved from that talk about war to the diplomatic breakthroughs at the Winter Olympics, and then the summits between North and South Korea and then several peak meetings between the, South, the North Korean leader and the Chinese premier. So all of that created a, a very new climate in 2018, and it meant that there was an influx of tourism from China, even though there was still this question of sanctions and so on, which affected China to an extent too. But the reopening of economic relations between China and North Korea showed pretty clearly that you know, economically... I mean, this, this applies to many countries in the world too. China is central to the economic future of many, many countries, and uh, not least North Korea with that big boundary. So, for example, there was a, a mini boom in tourism in, from China. We were the oddities. You know, we had a little group in 2018 for, you know, from Australia, and they wanted to take pictures of us because we were the oddities there because all of the, uh, you know, there was no tourism in 2017, and all of a sudden in 2018 a boom in tourism, and then you've got also Chinese investment in, in metallurgy and minerals and so on like that. Clearly, the economic future of, of North Korea, despite the Koreans' um, ongoing sort of commitment to independence, but nevertheless, the, the economic future, the economic relationship with China is, is very important. And, of course, you know, with the South, reunifying with the South because... The South itself has built in a tremendous industrial capacity in that time that it's been under U.S. neocolonial control, let's say. In the region, does Japan have any impact on the situation in that area of Korea? They sure, st- sure, because Japan's the, the former colonial power and there's still that history of resentment. I think it took many decades, for example, for South Korea and Japan to have 
even South Korea as a effective US protector to have formal relationships with Japan took a long time because South Korea, all of the Korean Peninsula was colonized, as was large parts of China by the Japanese, and there were a lot of, um, you know, accountability issues from the past, you know, one of which was the use of the forcible prostitution of, of the so-called comfort women from both Korea and, and, and China. So, And then the other thing is because Japan had effectively been drawn into the, the orbit of the U.S. control of, of, of Northeast Asia, basically that... The Japanese, bizarrely, in a way, sort of regard North Korea as a threat, where in fact, you know, this is, you know, Japan was the country that had occupied, invaded and occupied Korea for many centuries, and, and North Korea is defending itself from the possible resurgence of a militarized Japan there. So that that's always a factor in the mix. I mean, when the U.S. set up its own puppet administration in South Korea with collaborators with with the US, but also with former collaborators with the Japanese there. This is one of the reasons why the South Korean regime was so unpopular for many decades. It wasn't didn't have any sort of civilian face. It didn't have recognised people who were respected for their contribution to Korean history and so on. So the, the merging of, you know, the old Japanese elite with the US occupation of Japan and, and the southern part of the Korean peninsula has got a has had a very powerful impact there. Now, whenever you hear of some new weapons test by North Korea, for example, you know, the Japanese will make a lot of noise about how they're under threat from North Korea. It's an inversion of the reality, actually. The same when you, when we hear about the so-called threats from North Korea to the South. I mean, there are constant provocations from the US and from the, and its southern collaborators against the North. And so the North, of course, has its own type of diplomacy and type of responding in kind you know, a much more aggressive diplomacy than, say, Iran or Cuba or other countries that are besieged by the U.S. Uh, it's always said to be aggression coming. And, and when you read the histories, unfortunately, most of the popular histories in the English language are dominated by this idea that somehow North Korea is the aggressor there and Japan is some sort of helpless victim and the U.S. is some sort of helpless victims. The southern part of the Korean Peninsula is still occupied militarily you know, after more than 70 years. Would you say that the future of Korea depends on the US, what the US does, what Trump does in the near future, if Trump goes, what or Biden might do? What's your opinion on that? I don't think either of them have actually, either Biden or Trump, have much influence in that relationship because it's something that the properly named deep state in the US has established as part of its sphere of influence. You know, if we look at John Bolton's book, for all of the, the mendacious sort of aspects of it, I think one thing he confirms is that Trump genuinely did want to get out of Afghanistan and Syria, for example, but was unable to develop any sort of plan and was countered by other aspects of the state, you know, other parts of the of the US state. I think the same applies to Northeast Asia, basically, but it's very strategically important for the US deep state to remain in that part of the world as long as they maintain their idea of dominating Asia and Russia, basically, because their foothold in the Korean Peninsula is on the border of, um, almost on the border of Russia and almost on the border of China there, basically. And were they to lose that foothold in Korea, their influence would be 
diminished substantially. The same goes for their role of, of NATO in Europe. You know, there's good relations between Russia and Western European countries, as a lot of people want in that part of the world. Then what's the point of a U.S. military presence and the U.S. influence on the European Union and, and Western Europe? So the U.S. in decline, as a, as a would-be empire, you know, economically, we know it's seriously in decline and uh, militarily can't really compensate for that and now has serious rivals, particularly in the term, in, in term of uh, Russia and China. I think the U.S. is going to hold on to its base in, in, in South Korea and parts of Japan as long as it can because if not, we'll see a, I mean, this is the long, the longer term history, isn't it? We'll see a contraction or a withdrawal of U.S back into the Americas, basically. and um, uh, But to give up, it's a bit of pill for them to swallow, to give up the game of their influence in, in both Europe and, and East Asia. And I don't think that uh, personalities like Trump or, or Biden really have any sort of vision to be able to sort of change that course of the, let's say, if we use the analogy of the big ship of, of U.S. imperial foreign policy wanting to, have significant influence in Asia and Europe. I don't see that either Biden or Trump are, are going to turn that around. Finally, Tim, there are nuclear weapons in the or on the Korean Peninsula. Whose weapons are they? So that's an important factor because uh, even though the armistice in 1953 was a very limited document, it wasn't a peace agreement which maintains the tension there. The, the terms of it did prohibit any new weapon systems to escalate tensions in the peninsula. And the U.S. violated that, I think it was in 1956 or 1957, by introducing nuclear weapons to the peninsula. So when we look at the undoubted paranoia that in the, the north part of the peninsula, in North Korea, we have to take into account that they've been facing nuclear a nuclear threat for what, more than 60 years there. And so their decision to eventually develop nuclear weapons as a deterrent it has to be read in that sort of sense there. Um, the U.S. went ahead to establish itself and to place those, those catastrophic weapon systems on the Korean Peninsula, and it's led to uh, an escalation which in some ways probably stabilizes the situation because the North Koreans certainly do look at little country like Libya, which was encouraged to disarm and then got destroyed. And they say, well, this was extreme naivety on the part of independent Libya to do that. So, of course, the U.S. is uh, the one responsible for the escalation of tensions and the North, the North seeking to get control of nuclear weapons. There. So when people talk about condemnations of the escalation of the North Koreans seeking nuclear weapons, Let's remember it was the US that first did that more than 60 years ago. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. I've been speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. 
Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. In DigiTube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. Melbourne's local documentary film festival is going online and nationwide from the 30th of June until the 15th of July. Canvassing an eclectic range of documentaries from South by Southwest, Slam Dance and Tribeca to Music, video games and true crime with over 55% locally made in Melbourne and across Australia. Check it out at www.mdff.org.au. Prices start from $8 a stream. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Questions are being asked. How have we got into the situation where the government has announced that Australia will spend $575 billion on the defence budget over 10 years to 2030, including over $207 billion to upgrade Australia's arsenal for war in the middle of a pandemic, and this includes $800 million on missiles for Trump. Late last week I spoke with Stephen Darley, the convener of IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network in South Australia. Stephen, put this announcement of Morrison's in context of a virus with many people struggling just to survive financially and mentally. What does it say about the Australian government? It says that their priorities are all wrong and that their priorities are not driven by the interests of the Australian people, but by external forces, and principally in this case, the United States. I mean, when a country doubles its defence spending over 10 years, you generally look to some sort of a military crisis or some sort of a foreign policy crisis. There is nothing such happening except in the rather favoured brains of American and Australian hawks, if you like. We had the the, um, FBI this morning coming out with more hysteria about China, essentially describing a process whereby China is economically competing with the United States and winning. But isn't that supposed to be the essence of capitalism, which is what the United States has been promoting for most of its existence? It's just that they can't uh, come at that situation, so they have to create the idea that China are somehow doing it illegitimately. I'm not painting China as angels, but they're not doing anything that the United States doesn't do. And in fact, they spend an awful lot less on arms than the United States does, though they are the second biggest military spenders in the world. Australia is simply following that United States lead, uh, despite the fact that we, China is still our biggest um, trading partner. Just 
directly against the uh, Australian interests, um, however you put it, and it it puts the spending on the uh, coronavirus into the shade because who's to know that this is not going to be increased again um, under U.S. urging? This is a a, a road that once you embark upon it, we've seen before, as people calling it, arms race two. Arms race one, uh, sorry, Cold War two, and Cold War one led to enormous expenditure for the Russian and the uh, American people, and Cold War two will be even more. On the other hand, you've got Morrison justifying it by invoking the spectre of 1930 and 1940 and the collapse of the global everything. That's part of the overhype that's involved in this. You know, um, Christensen, who's um, an icon of the uh, right wing of the Liberal Party in Australia, comparing the Chinese to Nazi Germany. There's no such uh, situation uh, on the horizon. China is not invading other countries. The main center of the crisis is much closer to China, that is the South China Sea, is much closer to the Chinese mainland than it is to either Australia or even more remotely the United States. It's a false crisis being created to cover up the fact, as I said, that China is simply outcompeting the US. And also the fact, surely, that China is ringed by US bases and they are enormous US bases right through the Pacific. Yes, they are. As far as I'm aware, China has one foreign military base in Djibouti in the Red Sea. And, by the way, the United States has, an old, has one in the same country. So <laughs> it's not sitting on its own, whereas the United States has 800. And as you said, there is a whole ring of them, a whole chain of them um, off the coast of China. It's uh, not comparable in, in, in any way. That, by the way, is one of the major reasons for the enormous U.S. expenditure, the fact that they are maintaining and equipping um, and upgrading and modernizing 800 military bases. Um, the other one, of course, is the role of the American military-industrial complex, which is the classic tail wagging the dog. And then a couple of years ago, you had Trump saying, well, we're not going to shoulder all the, the blame of this on ourselves. We want the Allies to spend 2% of their budget on defence. So that all fits in with it too, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And Australia, with this commitment, goes well over 2%. It's, it's, it's not absolutely clear exactly how much it is, but it appears to be a doubling of the Australian defence budget over 10 years. A lot of, of that we don't know what it's going to be spent on. Possibly more of the same thing, more F-35s, which don't work properly, uh, more future submarines, which a lot of experts say we don't need and uh, are being bought at a great expense and providing very few jobs in Australia. And other equipment as well, which um, are about offense, not defense. Very little of this expenditure is likely, on past experience, to be spent on actually defending this country, and far more on being the deputy sheriff to the United States. And, of course, you've always got that sup to the workers here in Australia. If we spend all this money on making weapons, well, you know, there's been a lot of job losses. We could employ you making weapons. But even that's a furphy because it's very well known around the world that military industrial jobs are one of the worst ways of providing job stimulus. If you, even if you set aside the, the moral dimension, 
they are incredibly expensive jobs because of the capital intensity of the village industrial complex. And there are far cheaper ways to um, provide um, jobs in uh, the economic crisis that Australia and the world is going into. You know, renewables is, is one of them, but there are many others. You could pick uh, a, a dozen different uh, industries that would still be better than the most industrial uh, pathway for providing jobs. And I think it's a fact that Australia is on the nose with many of our Pacific neighbours because of our non-commitment to climate change, you can imagine how they're looking at this issue saying, well, if you've got all this money, why aren't you looking to the Pacific to assist us to cope with climate change? You might say if Australia's agenda is to increase its influence on the Pacific and provide a country to China, but a peaceful country to China, then spending money on climate change would be a far better way of doing it than spending money on, on the military. Um, it wouldn't cost as much by any means because of the relatively small number of people in the Pacific, but it would have a much greater impact on the lives of those people in a positive way. Instead, what we do is participate in American military exercises such as RIMPAC, which um, actually threaten the people of the countries um, who are uh, involved, well, in this case, Hawaii. So it's just a, a counterproductive strategy from all points of view. Just wondering how much the people of Hawaii have a say in what's happening with these second-year exorcists they have off the coast of Hawaii. I'd imagine there's a great number of people there who aren't very happy to have these exercises there. That's right. We Well, especially in the situation where the US Armed Forces, and in particular the Navy, seems to have been, and probably still is, rife with coronavirus positives. We saw that situation a, a couple of months back with the USS Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier in Guam, in which the captain actually went to the length of destroying his own career um, in order to draw attention to the fact that many of the sailors were sick and were not getting proper attention. Well, that's terrible, but on the other hand, those sailors were transferred from the Roosevelt to Guam, which is one of the worst, most badly treated colonies in the world, an American colony that's hardly um, represented. But as for Hawaii, yes, there is a... We've, we're now taking part through IPAN in uh, the uh, Pacific Peace uh, Network, um, and we had recent contact with uh, people in, um, in, uh, in Hawaii and with the National U.S. Peace Group called Pink. And they were very much concerned about the transfer of those forces and onto land. Now, they did modify the RIMPAC exercise, partly because of this, so that the land-based component was reduced. But the, the, the naval and air forces were still being transferred onto land, so they still represented a very significant threat to Hawaii. Um, interestingly, I haven't seen any um, reports about the Hawaiian's situation uh, post uh, the Red Pack exercise, which was about two weeks ago. That's an ongoing issue with uh, with that exercise. Quite apart from the fact that it, it, it makes Hawaii more dangerous um, as a, a target, China or whoever else is competing with the United States. Uh, it's a bit like the, the bases and the U.S. Marines in, in Australia in that respect. 
Are those marines still coming to... Oh, by the way, well, they're back, yes. They, they, they are now back in Australia. The ongoing, uh, and nothing has been changed as far as the renewed lockdown in Victoria, which may well be extended to the rest of Australia in a, in a few weeks' time. But, um, yes, the marine rotation in the Northern Territory to the Robertson uh, Barracks near Darwin is back in force and nothing has been announced to say that that won't continue, therefore present a, a ongoing threat to Australia from the sky-high and rampant positives for COVID-19 in the United States, never mind the military forces, which by their very nature tend to be um, more closely in contact with each other and therefore more at risk of COVID-19. But just take the, the general American um, population, their rates are far higher than Australia, so they represent a real existential threat to the people of the Northern Territory and particularly Darwin. Do you believe, as you said then, that maybe the whole of Australia might be locked down in the near future, that this would somehow force the Australian government to back out of this because it's only for two weeks now? Well, it's possible, but I think they brought them back prematurely because the Americans said uh, enough of this. Um, part of being a, 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 an ally or a deputy sheriff, whoever the Americans put it, is to um, take risks and uh, we'll, we want you to bring the Marines back because we don't want to have any gap in our um, military forces in the, in the Pacific. And you can imagine the kind of conversation we've had and there's no signs of Scott Morrison standing up to um, President Trump or for that matter the, the uh, ALP either. Um, but yes, I, I think just to slightly divert, the situation in Victoria is not anomalous uh, situation in Victoria is essentially a matter of lockdowns being released and the likelihood is that the whole of Australia is going to be in that situation and therefore we are put under um, great threat by these Marines being returned to uh, Darwin um, and the Northern Territory, which was previously um, almost um, COVID-19 uh, positive free um, but We'll see with the Marines in Darwin now. Everyone would agree that we need a, a defence department and defence spending, but how would you like to see it spent? It's about defending this country, which is a continent, and it's long been known that one of the, the greatest elements of uh, the advantages Australia as far as defence is concerned is the size of the continent and the fact that its population centres are predominantly in the central and southern parts of the, the continent. So we should take advantage of that. Um, kind of a, a, sweet, a Swiss approach, which is to make it... Um, we, you can't make yourself totally um, uh, defensible, but you, you make it so that it is not worth the while of any country. Now, of course, you're dealing again with the situation that why would China want to attack Australia, absent the American bases here, because they're already our biggest trading partner. But say you wanted to put it in a, in a, a theoretical sense, there are weapons and postures and equipment that are more purely defensive and that therefore don't threaten other countries that would be much more advantageous to Australia than 
the equipment and, and weapons that we're now getting. Uh, it's very uh, interesting that the language in the um, the new budget that's just been announced for the military talks in terms of making any threat to Australia opposable further from our shore. Now, if you think about that terminology, that can justify infinitely offensive equipment because you're saying, well, there's a threat over there and we've got to deter it from coming anywhere near Australia. So we will effectively uh, take up an offensive posture against them for defensive purposes. Every military um, offensive uh, in, in the world has been justified on defensive grounds, um, you know, including, ironically, um, Hitler. He always said he was under threat before he invaded a country. And that's what the Americans are doing. And therefore, Australia is joining in that course. And there's no joy from the Labor Party? Oh, nothing. They, they have, as far as I'm aware, they have not even uttered a squeak about this massive increase in, in defence spending. They're, they're quite pathetic um, in that respect. They follow behind uh, like sheep whenever the Americans say something. And they compete, in fact, with the, um, uh, the little nationals uh, coalition in, in how subservient they can be to the United States. Uh, in how much they present U.S. positions um, advantageously, uh, no matter how outrageous they are. So, no, I don't see much um, scope for the ALP changing their perspective. You know, we got a couple of years ago, we Penny Wong started talking a little bit more of having a more independent foreign policy, but talk is cheap, weapons are expensive, and... Nothing they've said or done in action um, have been, have changed their posture, uh, which is just as just as the United States Army as uh, the liberal nationals. Have you seen any reports in the mainstream or the corporate media actually analysing what's going on and putting forward the points of view like we would here at Three CR and with IPAN? Depends what you mean by mainstream media. Um, the media has become more diverse now, but certainly not in the age or the um, uh, other Fairfax press or obviously the Murdoch press. They're gung-ho for the um, spending and for the um, American uh, alliance. They, they continue to be so. I mean, in fact, the latest thing we've heard, which should send a chill down a lot of people's spines, is that the Liberal Party, uh, uh, under the urging of the Murdoch, are actively considering Peter Dutton being the new Minister of Defence, which I think is very uh, threatening indeed. Um, the man has no restraint when it comes to militarisation. What about the ABC? I suppose they're all frightened of their jobs now. They're not going to put their heads up above the parapet. The ABC have... You don't have to watch Q&A. The ABC have been thoroughly cowed. They come up with the same old cold warriors when they deal with foreign policy situations. Um, they they always have, uh, well, they nearly always seem to have someone from the wider news corp stable um, on their shows, you know, Greg Sheridan or Paul Kelly or whatever. I, I, just, I don't expect much from the ABC, unfortunately. Um, you know, on some issues, they report reasonably well, but on foreign policy issues, no, I uh, I haven't seen much from the ABC to say that they'd be willing to be brave enough. I mean, you have to remember there's been plenty of actions taken in Australia 
to intimidate potential critics. And we've, we've seen a situation where a, a Labour MP has been arrested um, and the, the message is very clear. You, you steer, steer clear of this sort of situation, you will do well for yourself. But if you stray into the foreign policy realm and don't repeat the same old talking points, then you're in trouble. So yes, short answer is the ABC has been intimidated um, and they're not going to uh, threaten their um, funding any further, I don't think. What about social media and the fact that do younger people think about things like this? Do they actually know what's going on? I think they do. I think that's one of the broader points in the the breakdown of the old model of media, um, which was dominated by News Corp and by the Fairfax Press and and by the existing um, TV stations, which at least two out of the three commercial ones are going further to the right. But there's a greater diversity of media, um, including people sourcing their material from social media. But then you have to think, what does that mean? Well, Google and Facebook are not exactly... um, reliable sources and um, Facebook tends to be um, quite subservient to um, Trump these days. Google is all over the place. So people, we ought to encourage people to look to a variety of different sources for the media, of which there are some important ones in Australia. Um, Crikey, um, New Matilda, um, Independent Australia Media, there, there, there are a number of sources, but unfortunately there still is in this generation that tendency of Australians to think well, politics is the realm for politicians, and we haven't got any time for politicians, which is very much a positive thing, but on the other hand, then they leave the um, too much of the decision-making up to those very politicians that they despise. So it's a real catch-22 situation. It's, it's a very difficult, a difficult one. Finally, Stephen, what to be done? We do need to chip away. I think one of the most important things to say is what you started the interview with, which is what are Australia's needs at the moment? What do we need to spend money on? Obviously, um, we need to spend it on the economic crisis resulting from COVID-19, and we ought to spend it on dealing with COVID-19 itself as well as, of course, the ongoing threat of climate change. All of those things are of um, primary importance. We ought to, for instance, continue the spending on JobKeeper and JobSeeker um, rather than cut them back in September, which the government's still talking about. That could easily be accommodated within this gross increase in the military budgets. That's where we ought to be thinking of, and I think that's something that Australian people will have some resonance with. Um, I don't think the the automatic idea that we're under threat is going to work anymore, although, unfortunately, there is a degree of anti-Chinese racism in Australia, which is being encouraged in lots of ways by um, the main conservative media in, in the country, as well as the government. There are also concerns that if the government does close down these job assistance packages in September that there could be a fair bit of trouble and the government might have to rethink if they do it. I think there could be because apart from anything else, there's a very large number of people 
um, who joined the unemployment queues, as we know, uh, many of whom will not get jobs back in the foreseeable future. They have, uh, unlike some of the people who are long-term unemployed, they haven't lived on the small amount of money that was in place of $40 a day before the um, enhanced job seeker package. And I think if they did try and reduce it to that, uh, which they still might, they will generate a lot of uh, social concern. But on the other hand, not only the federal government, the state government is willing to take um, quite ruthless action, uh, if not very smart action, in the face of the, the economic and epidemiological problems of COVID-19. And you only have to look at the uh, standing in of armed police to, um, to cars uh, in Melbourne. That was atrocious. Unlike everyone else in Australia, they, they, they hadn't got any warnings that this was going to happen. And they're still in a situation, which you probably know better than me, where they're not getting enough food into people. So I think that that's an element of this as well. It contributes to the more broad militarisation of Australian society. We know where that ends up. It ends up in the situation that the US has on, on the streets. Uh, at present in the, the whole Black Lives Matter and that, you know, Australia is heading down that pathway. Peter Dutton as Defence Minister would be another step along that way, unfortunately. I mean, I, I'm, I'm almost laughing because it's just an absurdity, but there we go. That's simply being considered. I've been speaking with Stephen Darley, who's the South Australian convener for IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. On the program last week, Bob Phelps, the Director of Genetics, spoke mainly about the settlement in the US where sufferers of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma were awarded nearly $11 billion with another $1.25 billion for potential future claims. He explained how up to 120,000 sufferers in the US had been cheated. Now to the second part of that interview with Bob. Two other issues that we've covered over past months. There's the not-so-humble potato and the irradiation of fresh fruit and vegetables. Is there any moves on both these issues? Well, the application for the innate potato that Food Stands Australia New Zealand is considering is up for comment until this Friday. Uh, we're racing at the moment to, to get a submission in by the deadline, but others are welcome to do that too. Um, a1192 on the Food Stands Australia New Zealand website will easily find the relevant documents and even a short letter or one page are saying we don't want gene manipulated potatoes in our um, food supply would be a good idea. Uh, those potatoes are being at the moment um, deregulated in the USA so they won't require any regulation or control there. Although they won't be grown in Australia for the moment, they will be approved, I expect. Food Stands Australia New Zealand usually gives a tick to anything that it likes, uh, that those uh, potatoes would start coming into the Australian food supply as potato chips or as potato starch for processed foods. So um, look out for innate. As far as irradiation is concerned, that's going to come up more towards the end of the year. They're working up their recommendations about it at the moment. This is an application from the Queensland government. At the moment, there's approval for the irradiation of 26 tropical fruits and vegetables. 
that's to say that they can be exposed to uh, high levels of radiation, of radioactive energy, in order to kill fruit fly. Of course, it doesn't make the food itself radioactive, but does affect its nutritional quality and does also, of course, potentially leave radiolytic products in those foods as well. But the latest proposal, A1199, is for um, all fruits and vegetables to be allowed to be irradiated. It's under the pretext of not only killing fruit fly, but also as a biosecurity measure against viruses, fungi, and other microorganisms, particularly in the importation of food. Of course, very conveniently for the food industry, it also lengthens the shelf life of anything that is irradiated. As far as we can see, that's one of the key drivers, is that to get your so-called fresh fruits and vegetables to market, you irradiate them, you essentially pre-cook them, and then uh, you can get them into the marketplace and get them onto the shelf and sold before they collapse in an ugly heap uh, as a result of this process. That's one that people should look out for who care about the safety and uh, nutritional value of our food supply later in the year, and we're certainly uh, happy to keep anybody who's interested abreast of what's happening in that on that application as well. And this, Bob, is on top of whatever else is either sprayed or dipped or whatever on our fruit and vegetables that aren't organic. How many processes are there that are allowed for before a fruit or vegetable comes to the shop? I can't, I'm not sure about too much detail, but I do know that um, uh, certainly dipping tropical fruit has been one of the um, uh, methods and, of course, the couple of chemicals that were used previously for dipping tropical fruit to uh, get rid of the tropical fruit fly, but not its eggs, which are embedded in the fruit, were phased out because they were so toxic. That was a good move. But then instead of requiring the introduction of management practices like pheromone strips and the bagging of tropical fruit and so on, which is much more troublesome for the producers, much more labour-intensive and probably would have increased the price to the shopper of those fruits and vegetables. The easy way out has been for the Queensland government to get those fruits and vegetables approved to go into a factory where the high levels of radiation energy are applied in order to um, kill those fruit fly, which is now required overseas, of course, and also interstate. So we needed environmentally friendly and human-friendly methods, and instead they've gone for the high-tech, zap-everything kind of approach. And uh, that's just not something that should be extended now to all fruits and vegetables. It's um, turning the conventional fruit and veggie supply into a, um, I think, into a very high-stakes gamble for the people who eat those products. And also when you see some fruits in the shop that are, they're coloured, the cut colour they should be, but really they're not ripe at all. It's a process in the factory or wherever to colour them to look. Oh, like yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another, that's another process, of course, yes. Some fruits are approved for dipping in, in wax and other uh, plastics and other sub- substances to put a thin coat on 
in order to uh, seal them. Apple's sort of a particular target of that because that also extends the shelf life. But the other thing, as you've intimated, uh, is that um, a lot of fruits are now picked green and then when they arrive at the wholesale market, they're put in a, um, a gas room and given a gas which begins the ripening process. So that's the process that would go on naturally out in the field if fruit was left on the tree to ripen. And that's why if you've got a, an orchard near you, as we do here, it's great to be able to go to the orchard and actually pick ripe fruits and know what they really taste like rather than getting those um, half-ripe and then artificially ripened uh, fruits uh, from your fruit and veggie store, which do tend to ripen up. I mean, it's a natural process, but it's it's stalled by picking those um, those fruits and vegetables when they're not ready, taking them to the wholesale market, and then starting the process there. People who have got... Uh, fruit in their own gardens like kiwi fruit or even if you buy kiwi fruit hard from the shop for instance will know that if you put those in a bag with a, an apple that's ripening that the gas from the apple will get the process going in your kiwi fruit and certain other fruits as well as part of the ripening process we've just recently done it here with persimmons for instance it's the industrialization of what would go on naturally um, and I think it shows the need for us to maximise the amount of local, fresh, clean, green and tree-ripened fruits and vegetables that we can get if we're going to get um, the maximum nutrition from uh, the food supply. Well, from your place to South Australia, Bob, and an unfinished business there with GM Free. Yes, well, we're still battling it out. Um, the South Australian government lifted the moratorium on GM crops and so their GM-free crop status uh, was really swept away by the government a couple of months ago. But what they did in the compromise that they did with the South Australian Labor Party to get the deal through the parliament uh, was that uh, the local councils throughout South Australia would be given the opportunity to develop a case for why they should stay GM free, not have genetically manipulated canola or any other crops uh, grown in their areas. So it moved the onus of proof really from the state government to local councils, the 58 local councils in South Australia that have now been given the job by September to um, canvas their local communities to uh, gather evidence that there is actually some benefit from staying GM-free, which I think we have amply demonstrated, but now it has to be done on a local basis in each local area. Uh, they have to consult their uh, local citizens, their farmers and the food industry in particular, and come back to the Primary Industries Minister, uh, Whetstone, uh, by September to make the case that uh, they should be declared a GM-free crop zone. Well, with 58 councils involved, you can imagine that it's quite a large job that we've been working hard on, and there's certainly a very good team of activists in South Australia. But um, the minister is going to have the final say. His advisory committee, which is stacked with pro-GM people, 
are also going to get in on the act, as are um, the uh, primary industries department, who are very pro-GM as well. So we're giving it our best shot, but um, it looks as though from next year, the government will press on with allowing Bayer and other companies to begin selling genetically manipulated seed into the South Australian market. It's just so ludicrous, really, that it defies belief. This is a small industry. Kangaroo Island is allowed to remain GM-free because it gets premium prices for its GM-free products, both its grains and its um, beverages, particularly in South Southeast Asian markets. So it's being let off the hook. It's being left to be GM-free because it's demonstrably a benefit for the farmers and the food processors there. And yet the government is saying that the rest of South Australia can't do what Kangaroo Island is already doing and uh, that there are no benefits from staying GM-free, all on the pretext that a few farmers, a handful of the 5,000 South Australian farmers, want to have the choice to grow GM crops, to go the lazy way so they can spray the Roundup that we just talked about more often and at higher doses over their crops without harming the canola, but getting a more efficient weed kill. We know very well that in the next few years at least, that the um, weeds will bounce back, that um, they will become uh, Roundup resistance and the farmers will be resorting to tanks, tank mixes and other toxic strategies. And moreover, they'll be getting a discount for their canola into the European market, which is the main market for uh, South Australia's canola already uh, pays a premium and... Uh, So the whole thing is just ideological rather than scientific and factual. We're giving it our best shot to get the state to stay GM-free and to reap the rewards. Well, finally, Bob, the issue which is concerning all people, doesn't matter where you live in the world, is the corona-19 pandemic. Australia and others pushed for an inquiry into whether it was China's fault. You maintain we need a comprehensive global Inquiry. Well, we do because it's still not known where the um, where this virus originated and uh, jumped over to humans from animals, and there is still among the possibilities the serious possibility that it came out of a high so-called high security laboratory. That's still on the table. Was it from bats in caves or food and wildlife trade? It's obvious that. Um, that those high-security labs around the world, of which there are many, including one near Geelong here in in Victoria, uh, need to come under much more stringent surveillance. Biosafety and biosecurity need to be substantially beefed up. Australian Animal Health Laboratory near Geelong here in Victoria was renamed in April the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness and What we know about that place is that they have had untoward incidents of health and safety previously, and we think, therefore, that the high-containment facilities here and around the world need to be um, under much more stringent biosafety and biosecurity regulations. 
more precaution needs to be exercised and we need to find out whether the extremely hazardous and dangerous infectious agents that are in these facilities are adequately contained uh, because if indeed the COVID pandemic did come out of laboratory, whether it's genetically manipulated or not, we need to be aware that these are highly, potentially highly contagious facilities and uh, they're ones that the public knows very, very little about. So don't blame the Chinese uh, for this uh, pandemic. I think we need to um, be asking some serious questions of all the people who have such high security, level four, and maybe even level three laboratories, just what kind of constraints are they under, what rules apply, what containment is in place, and what is in there, what is being contained, and why. For instance, the Animal Health Laboratory here was previously focused exclusively on diseases of animals and livestock, but now has taken on the role of looking at diseases of the human population as well. And with the some of the most dangerous and infectious agents in the world, quote unquote, from their own website, I think it's time for the public to really ask some hard questions and get our governments to exercise a lot of additional control and precaution around these facilities. Thank you, Bob. And that was Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network.